Welcome to the C-Store Decisions Live podcast. I'm Frank Beard. And I'm Erin Del Conte. Join us as we take a look at the trends impacting today's fuel and convenience retailing industry. But first, a word from our sponsor. Invenco is a global provider of revolutionary self-service payment technology and secure customer engagement solutions. With a strong presence in the petroleum retail vertical, Invenco's product lines include the retrofit kit-based G6 and G7 outdoor payment terminals, NFX retail microservices, cloud services remote management platform, and Invenco Link encrypted high-speed Ethernet network. Invenco's outdoor EMV rental model, Invenco i2, is designed to help U.S. fuel retailers address the EMV liability shift without the burden of a large upfront investment. Invenco has deployed over 125,000 EMV payment terminals, engaging millions of customers all around the world every day. Invenco is headquartered in Auckland, New Zealand, and operates U.S. offices in Atlanta and Tampa. So before we dive into the topic of this podcast, we thought we'd take a look at some of the things that we're reading this week. Erin, what's on your radar? Well, uh, the C-Store Decisions editorial team, we're working on our big June tobacco issue. So I have tobacco on the brain. So some uh, headlines that have been getting my attention uh, in April, FDA announced uh, its plans to propose tobacco product standards within the next year to ban menthol. Uh, in cigarettes, as well as banning all characterizing flavors, including menthol, in cigars. Um, You know, so FDA has said that this will significantly reduce youth initiation, uh, you know, increase the uh, ability of smokers who want to stop smoking to stop smoking and address health disparities uh, experienced by communities of color, low-income populations, and LGBTQ plus individuals who they say are more likely to use these menthol or flavored tobacco products. So obviously this is uh, a big deal for convenience stores, um, assuming this goes through as planned, which it, it seems like it, it will. Um, we've also seen this happening at the state level, of course. Uh, most recently, you know, New York um, is currently fighting legislation, proposed legislation that would seek to ban the sale of all flavored tobacco in New York. So this includes flavored smokeless tobacco, things like cherry pipe tobacco and menthol cigarettes. Um, you know, I was chatting with Jim Calvin, the president of the New York Association of Convenience Stores, and he mentioned, uh, you know, their economic analysis shows that if this were to pass, it would cost the state $3.4 billion in lost tax revenue over the next decade, and it would cost store owners nearly $500 million a year in lost sales, eliminate 1,200 jobs in retail and related industries. So uh, New York currently fighting that. And then we're looking at Maine. On May 12th, the Maine Health and Human Services Committee voted out of committee a bill that seeks to ban the sale of all flavored tobacco in the state. So that includes menthol cigarettes, wintergreen dip, flavored cigars, uh, which would be really devastating to local retailers. So that's a lot of what what I'm monitoring that and how retailers are responding and just, you know, what that could do to the industry and what retailers are going to have to do to make up those lost sales in other areas, such as uh, doubling down on food service and so forth. Yeah, that's crazy. Um that's going to hit some retailers pretty hard. Um, what are you hearing um, from people as far as a response? 
Is it they're just kind of accepting we can't really do anything about this and we well, just so got to pivot as, or are they especially back? especially on the the state level, you know, they're the industry is act, asking people retailers in Maine, you know, to reach out to their legislators and do everything they can to to fight this, to explain how this would affect retailer retailers the same with um in New York, you know, reach out to your legislators, let them know how this will affect you cuz sometimes you know, local legislators don't always understand the the retailer point of view on this they're only hearing that you know they're so loud coming from the side of it that's you know pushing the health initiatives but they don't often hear how it would affect ro- local businesses and what retailers are already doing to make sure that they're keeping cigarettes out of the hands of youth uh, where that is the main concern um, and, and when it comes to F- FDA, I, I think what the FDA wants to do, it's going to do. I expect that this will probably be, you know, be pushed out. But they've been threatening to do this for a long time. We've seen them come after vape. And, uh, you know, of course, retailers should be reaching out, should be letting the FDA know how this is going to impact them. So this isn't a rule yet. This has been FDA announcing that they're planning to introduce the rule within the next year. So the National Association of Tobacco Outlets has said that it is monitoring this rulemaking process closely and that it's going to be updating its members at the various stages of the process, uh, including how to submit those comments to the FDA. Usually once a rule is announced, there's a designated comment period when retailers could potentially submit their comments about how this would impact their business and why it might be problematic to the FDA. So uh, when I say contact FDA, you kind of have to wait for that comment process, uh, that that uh, comment period when you can uh, reach out to them and uh, let them know how this would impact you. Yeah, that's kind of crazy because it seems like the sort of thing that's just going to push a sales to other channels or black markets potentially or, Absolutely. you know, go across the state lines and mm-hmm. have someone's older brother buy a bunch of it and come back. It's uh and that's it's, absolutely what New York is looking at, yeah. right? They've already seen that uh, with other with other products, and as taxes has been raised, so yeah. And it sounds like they they always, in particular, have some issues with black market tobacco too. Mm-hmm. It's um, yeah. I, I mean, the intentions may be good, but it it's always more complicated than it seems. Um, plus, yeah, I don't know. I'm always on the side of as much as you would really like to <laughs> regulate people's purchasing uh, behaviors and steer them toward better decisions. Uh, it's not always the easiest thing to do. And sometimes it just doesn't necessarily work. You see that with, um, you know, issues like uh, large, you know, large sugary drinks. And mm-hmm, things exactly. Of that the, um, the whole nanny state trying to, to tell you what you can do. And, and it's so interesting to me, right? Because we're still coming out of the pandemic here. <laughs> and it's so interesting to me that the things that the government seeks to regulate versus the things that they that they really don't. It's just it's so interesting to me. Yeah, it's, you know, the thing with vaping in particular is one that always gets me. It's like, look, I think vaping is like one of the best compromises for people who hate the smell of cigarette smoke. I can't personally, I can't stand the smell of it. It, it I find it absolutely disgusting, but I don't mind if someone's vaping next to me. I, I mean, do I want to sit there and smell strawberry ba- vapor? Not really, but is it really that burdensome? No, I can tolerate it. It's it's just not the end of the world. Um, and it's... uh. It's always funny in some of those states where they're going after vaping, but yet they leave tobacco alone. And I've always found that so weird. I'm like, not to say vaping is most health conscious activity, but it's it's right. Not and and the it's interesting, right? It's interesting that the FDA is coming after, you know, smokeless. To, or I'm sorry that they're coming after cigars and that they're coming after cigarettes, but they're kind of leaving a lot of other stuff 
alone for now. Yeah. Um, it's it's just interesting how they how they go about it. Yeah, I always have to shake my head at some of that. It's uh it's interesting to say the least. But hey, you know, for retailers, I guess if you've ever needed a push to get into food service, I uh, hate to say it, but maybe maybe this is it. At least at least the margins are really high on on food. So mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so there so there is that. Um, speaking of Maine, they have a they have a lot of great convenience stores. Though. There's some folks doing really great food service up there. Um, you know, one thing that's been on my radar, though, um, I'm sure some listeners saw this, but uh, GoPuff announced a partnership with Uber Eats. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if a lot of folks really saw this one coming. It's interesting because you would think with DoorDash uh, very much pursuing their own uh, dark store network and their own virtual convenience stores, that maybe Uber would do something similar because they've dipped their toes in with grocery and you know things of that nature here over the past uh, year or so. Um, but instead of going that route, they announced a partnership with GoPuff. So this essentially is going to bring uh, GoPuff's items to the essential or instant needs uh, category on Uber Eats. So it's effectively they're just relying on GoPuff to do that, you know, the convenience side of the business. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, GoPuff right now, they're in 650 cities in the U.S. with over 250 micro-fulfillment centers, but it looks like the partnership here with Uber is going to bring them into, I think it was around 90, yeah, 95 cities starting this June and then nationwide later in the year. Um, I'm curious to see how that plays out. Um, Mm. You know, know, I think of here in Des Moines, I mean, we have GoPuff, DoorDash just turned on a dark store in Urbandale, Iowa, that's serving the metro area now. Um, I just checked the other day. It looks like they're finally selling from it. So that's kind of interesting. Um, uh, I actually went by the GoPuff warehouse the other day after I found the property records because I wanted to see what it looked like <laughs> in the morning. It's, uh, you know, it's it's nothing to write home about. It's just kind of a little sketchy warehouse. But it's interesting. You know, drivers pull up. They wait for about five minutes. And then someone comes out with a white GoPuff bag, hands it through the window, and then they drive off. Um it's uh, I don't know. I'd be curious to see how this works because I it looked like in the press release that they might be relying on GoPuff drivers, and that I find interesting because I don't know if this is a nationwide trend, but I know like the Axios local newsletter in Des Moines, they were even talking about, um, hey, is there like a driver shortage here for for Uber? Is anyone having trouble with this? Is it just us? Um, you know, people were complaining that they can't get rides to the airport sometimes. Um, my wife and I have seen where we've opened Uber Eats up on many occasions and there's just no drivers at 5 or 6 p.m. on a Friday night. Um, I don't know if that's a nationwide trend, but I find that interesting. Um, interesting. Sounds like they're I, yeah, having some was, shortages. Right. And I was also reading that Uber was just experiencing, you know, financial losses because of the pandemic. You know, when at the beginning of the pandemic, people weren't taking as, as many rides. Um, they, it mentioned that uh, people completed or Uber said it completed nearly 30 percent fewer trips in 2020. So, you know, perhaps given that delivery kind of fell off with them, drivers were down and now they haven't come back to the levels that they were at before. Well, and it seems like these types of companies are always really struggling to reach profitability in the first place. You know, they're 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 always, always trying and um I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how this goes. Um, I would think that some of the Uber rides might pick back up um, now that more folks are vaccinated and people are returning back to some sort of normalcy. But at the same time, I mean, a lot of that had to really be dependent on business travel. And I think even now, uh, a lot of business travel still got to be down. Um, You know, the idea of 
spending all that money to just fly and meet with someone for 30 minutes in an office and then turn back around and fly across the country. It seems kind of silly that, you know, we did that pre-pandemic. Now that we have Um, Zoom for all of that, so much more efficient. (laughs) Just open up a screen on your computer and have your meeting real quick. I I mean, not to discount the value of face-to-face interaction, but I think some of those trips are undoubtedly going to be cut down Mm -hmm. uh, from where they were pre-pandemic. So that's got to impact Uber. But this, yeah, this is, this is really interesting though, that they're moving in this direction. Um, And I'm interested in GoPuff too. Like what do you see as the real benefit to GoPuff here? Is it mostly you know, have being able to increase their network? Or do you see other benefits to them in this partnership as well? I mean, GoPuff is in huge growth mode. It's interesting. Recently, you know, they kind of went through rebranding, you know, didn't change the name or anything, but kind of changed the look and the style a bit. Uh, Less about Netflix and chill and beer pong and, you know, party mode for college students. It's, uh, you know, a little bit more general consumer now. Perhaps Um, growing up with their base. Exactly. As their base gets older, they're they're still holding on to them by evolving with them and then still, but still bringing in younger consumers at the same time. Exactly. They were they were started by two college roommates in 2013. So I guess, uh, you know, it's 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 growing up. But at the same time, um, GoPuff has been hiring a wave of talent, though, over the past few months. Um, They hired um, they hired a a VP away from Amazon. Well, I I think he had left Amazon first, but they hired a former VP from Amazon. They hired a, uh, you know, former, um, you know, former executive at Cormark. They've hired folks from um, TripAdvisor from, uh, from Uber, they've, they're putting together a, a, I mean, a really good team of people. They're, I, gosh, what's a recent valuation, like 8.9 billion. They just keep getting additional wow. funding. It's just growing rapidly. Um, had a great year this last year. So I think for them, um, you know, I guess if, if Uber wants them to do their convenience items, it's just another way to tap into another network and grow even more. So, um, Maybe the incentives are lined up there. Uh, I this is still completely new on my radar, so I don't really know anything more than that. But uh, it's interesting. So it'll be interesting to see uh, where this goes from from here, or how this works. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think our guest Patrick is just about on. So let's switch gears and let's chat EMV. So we're here with Patrick Raycroft, the Convenience and Energy Vertical Lead at W Capra Consulting Group. Pat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. So this huge momentous thing has just happened, which is the EMV deadline has passed. Um, I think we've been hearing about this for years at this Mm -hmm. point. Um, It was always coming. It was always coming, always getting pushed back. And then it finally happened. Um, So what's happened since then? Um, You know, I feel like we talked about this for so long, and then all of a sudden we just stopped talking about it. Um, what are what are you kind of seeing right now? Well, first and foremost, uh, the world didn't end. Uh, what was <laughs> there. Uh, I, I think there was this uh, an extreme amount of fear, uncertainty, doubt of what would happen come you know April of 2021, whether it get delayed again, et cetera. Um, I you know it, it the deadline has come and gone. Um, our clients, you know, in, in this space, you know, and across the, the re- retail uh, fuel vertical are starting to see chargebacks come through. Um, you know, it, it, it's working as expected as it did back in 2015 for, you know, other retail verticals that dealt with, with EMV liability shifts. Um, obviously, uh, you know, convenience and fuel was challenged more than other retail verticals because of the, the heavy investment that was required, you know, relative to the other verticals. 
Um, but again, the world didn't end. I think that's first and foremost. Um, the second thing that we're, we're noticing is that I, I think a lot of the, the approach from retailers to focus on their high fraud areas has paid off. Uh, so if you looked at, you know, how, especially the larger chains prioritized uh, their investment into outdoor EMB, they looked at their high fraud areas, right? They looked at, uh, you know, Florida, Texas, California, New York, uh, they looked at the areas that, that traditionally have the highest amount of liability shift and focus their investment there. And, and that paid off uh, the, the, you know, although we're seeing it was, it was likely around 50, 55% of, of stations were, were out there and being able to come to shift. Um, in some areas, if you look at those high fraud markets, it was higher, right? It was you know, closer to 75, 80, 85%. So I think secondly, the, the approach that retailers took leading up to the outdoor, uh, outdoor liability shift paid off. Um, and then I would say thirdly is we still see momentum. We're not talking about it as much, but, uh, there's still a large number of, of, you know, deployments that are happening out there. Um, I, I think, you know, early in the year, we were really challenged with technician availability and hardware availability, and that was causing delays and folks being able to actually deploy, even though they had committed to the investment to, to actually deploy those changes out to sites. We're seeing that happen. We're seeing momentum. Um, and then this is, you know, just a, PSA for all site site operators out there. My fourth and final point is keep an eye on your chargebacks. Um, we have seen examples uh, back in 2015. This happened too, uh, and we've we've been calling this out, and we have started to see real world examples in which issuing banks are incorrectly coding or incorrectly passing down uh, outdoor EMV liability chargebacks to operators. Whether that's you know it's the wrong reason codes. Or it's, you know, an EMV reason code for a card not present transaction, which can't happen. Or um, whether it's a EMV liability shift chargeback reason code for a transaction that occurred after the site was EMV enabled. We're seeing these kind of growing pains. And what I'm not going to comment whether it's malicious or not, or whether it's taking advantage of a situation that that's here or there. It's happening. And we just did, you know, it's definitely something to track for the foreseeable future as you know, industry goes through its growing pains here without Durian B. That's interesting. So you don't just have to worry about the chargebacks. You have to worry about being charged back for things that don't technically qualify. Yep. Yeah. We saw it a bunch in 2015. Um, at that point, the the issuing bank, well, the, the card brands put in a, a fair amount of controls because there was far more of that happening back in 2015, um, where issuing banks were just pushing a bunch of chargebacks down to um, retail locations. And those the merchants that were on the other side said, Hey, wait a minute. I just invested in and built out all of the CMV acceptance and you're pushing me chargebacks anyways. Um, so yeah, it does happen. I, I think it's definitely way less so than, than we saw in 2015. What we're seeing now, it's more spot instances, but for a single site operator or, you know, a, a smaller operator that, you know, it may only see a few chargebacks in a given month or year, seeing in a, a few additional ones is very impactful to the business. So I would just, you know, advise staying on top of it because things are slipping through the cracks, obviously. And Patrick wrote an article for our recent May issue where he was talking about, you know, kind of what's ahead now, now that we've gone through uh, this shift to to uh, become compliant as far as EMV, you know, it doesn't mean that the that the risk is over. And, and Patrick, you pose some solutions for retailers in things that they should be looking at now going forward. Can you can you share some of that with our listeners? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think to start, I, I'd, I'd start with just addressing a, a common misconception of EMV and what it is and what chip cards are. Uh, chip cards and, and the technology that underlies them is intended to address uh, counterfeit fraud and lost and stolen as well as we think about pin entry. But, but primarily it was meant to combat uh, the case in which card numbers are stolen in any and, and distributed in any um, malicious sense and then used for fraudulent transactions uh, at, at a, a retailer, right? What it doesn't do, and, and again, this common misconception, unfortunately, was a little precipitated by banks that were communicating this stuff out in their materials and they're sending out chip cards five years ago. It doesn't mm-hmm. protect your underlying card de- details, right? That is not what uh, outdoor EMV does. That's not what EMV technology does. Um, if somebody, a malicious actor, puts a, a skimmer, something like that, that can mm-hmm. de- you know pull card data off your card at the pump, or if they put any malicious software on your uh, devices, your point of sale devices, your pay, you know payment servers, etc., they can still get access to the underlying credit card information. And use that information to sell it elsewhere, you know, on the black market for for dollars to then be used, you know, for e-commerce purchases or or whatnot. So it doesn't protect the underlying credit card information. It protects you as an operator from uh, the fraud that would come from using stolen credentials at your site. So that's where the risk still resides for a lot of retailers. Um, So if you look at other retail verticals outside of convenience and fuel, um, pretty much lion's share of the businesses that are out there have employed two types of technology to protect the uh, underlying credit card information. And and I would say largely this is in response to some of the substantial security breaches that occurred in the late 2000s, thinking Target, thinking TJX, right? The large scale breaches where credit card information was leaked off their network. Um, Those two technologies are cryptography-based, they're meant to devalue the, the credit card information and make it worthless if somebody were to have access to your systems. And um, you know, in this context, I'll refer to them as point-to-point encryption, also known as end-to-end. That's a little bit of a nuanced conversation, but let's stick it with point-to-point encryption for now. Um, and tokenization. Uh, again, they're, they're meant to secure the card data and almost transfer that risk of processing your card data from your stores to another entity, right? Your payment processing mm-hmm. entities or something that sits above your sites. And it's to remove the risk of what processes occur at your stores. Uh, there was, there's been a couple of large scale and a, you know, from the convenience and fuel side, some large scale instances of, of credit card leaks even this year. Um, and, and those, you know, just to put them in perspective, those can cost organizations far more than EMV liability shift, uh, you know, liability from a, a, an EMV perspective. So that is why I wanted to write this article and call it out is because there's this, for lack of a better term, a big matzo ball sitting out there, which is, uh, you know, as, as attackers focus on convenience and fuel, which they obviously are doing, you know, there's a dark side uh, taking, taking down Colonial Pipeline in the past couple of weeks. This has come front and center. If they ta- attack larger organizations to get access to site-level uh, communication equipment, so point-of-sale, payment servers, and they don't have these two technologies in place, uh, retailers really run the risk of a large-scale breach event, which could cost their organization not not just 
hundreds of thousands or millions. We're talking tens of millions for the large organizations. Oof. These are scary conversations uh, that the reason, you know, information security officers exist and why they're, you know, reporting to the board and a lot of these organizations is the the risk of credit card data is substantial because, you know, each record mm-hmm. can be worth anywhere from two to ten dollars on the black market. If you're stealing millions of them at a time, they go quick. So is is um is this something that retailers you see are taking pretty seriously? Are they looking beyond just the EMV compliance and are they doing these other things or is this something that's further out on their roadmap? Um I would say, again, I, if I look at retailers outside of convenience and fuel, that's been front and center for, for a few years mm-hmm. now. Um, and in convenience and fuel, we see really kind of two camps. Um, I, I would say one camp that uh, actually the first camp is even split into two, right? There's the camp that has been affected by a security incident in the very recent history of their organization, and they're pretty focused on it, right? Whether they were mm-hmm. breached for credit card data or whether it was ransomware or whether it was uh, like a denial of service attack, whatever it was, right? They they had a security incident. It's now top of mind. It's reporting to their their board is is you know focused on on security top of mind. So there's that group that that's undoubtedly focused on this. Um and, and they're actively pushing out some deployments. Uh the second group is just the high, you know, the risk averse, you know, really focused on security. Haven't had an event, but that's probably why, because their culture is very guided by um, you know, risk aversion and, and protecting themselves from security events, they're focused on it as well. And then I'll be honest, there's the other camp, which is just, we just passed out during EMV. Don't talk to me about other risk aversion technologies I have to invest in. Um, just let me go invest in my business for a little while and, you know, build up the, the cash reserves I just outlaid for uh, out during EMV and we'll talk about it later. So those are the kind of 1A, 1B and the second camps that we're seeing develop here. So it doesn't sound like you're seeing a camp of people who are just saying, you know, I get that the the deadline for EMV has come and gone, but just I'm not going to worry about that. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> I would say there are people that this isn't even on their radar. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, 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 um, especially as we get down into the the I, I think the larger operators, the 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 organizations that have teams of people that are dedicated to information security, they know this is on their radar, right? They, mm-hmm. This is coming, right? As you get into the smaller operators, especially when you get into, you know, one, two, three, five, ten site operators, they don't have teams dedicated to this, right? They, you know, from a technology perspective, they'll have uh, an individual or a small team that's focused on their technology and they've been laser focused and f- fully, full freight ahead on outdoor EMV. This just isn't something that they're yet concerned with as an organization because of the, you know, the limited resources from a technology perspective they have. So um, I think the larger organizations, as you know, we're starting to see develop over time, right? They, they have those resources to dedicate. They're focused on it. Um, definitely the smaller organizations are the ones who will be caught a little more flat footed, I would say, as events happen. You know, a thing I always wonder with this is uh, for some of the smaller operators who are a little put off by the cost of compliance, um, is this just going to become an issue where they have to shut off payments at the pump because of the risk? Um, you know, I I remember hearing a story from one retailer that, uh, you know, someone had pulled up in a uh, large van that had a tank in the back and they just kept running charge after charge after charge. Uh, and an uh, employee went out and was curious, like, what's going on? How can this person be putting so much gas into this vehicle? And they saw them coming out and drove off. So they 
called the police and I think followed them until the police got there so they could tell them where they were. And yeah, it was a crime network and they were running stolen credit cards or stolen credit cards through and filling up a tank with gas to resell. Um, but it would seem like if your larger retailers are compliant, you just figure out what small rural stores aren't and target those. But what do you do? Do you just turn the pumps off because you don't want to deal with the cost of compliance at that point? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I the, it, it depends on your market is the simple answer. Um, I, I think in the markets where pay at the pump is cost of doing business, right? If you think about more of the urban, suburban markets, excluding kind of the ex-urban and rural markets, I'll, I'll come to this in a minute. If you think about the, the, the uh, where speed of service, top of mind, and they're going to have stations very nearby that most likely do have outdoor EMV deployed, enabled, and are processing cards outside, the the concept of turning off pay at the pump could crush their business, right? I mean, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because, you know, they're, they're struggling to justify or, or come up with the investment at the same time. If they shut off uh, pay at the pump, I, I don't know if they can maintain their volumes given their the proximity to other locations. Um, and it's also a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because as others nearby become outdoor EMV enabled, if they were to keep card acceptance up, they're the weakest link, right? Fraud's just going to shift to their site. So if you think about I'm doing, I have six stations within a mile of or two miles of, of my station. I'm the only one that doesn't have outdoor EMV enabled. I get fraud from all six. Right. I'm not getting just my fraud. I actually have to think that I take my fraud and multiply it by six. And that's really what's going to be coming my way. Um, so fraud shifts is, is the, the nature of that. So for, for those sites, um, I, you know, I, I, it's unfortunate, but I, I, I don't know if there's an alternative. Um, the only other alternative I see is if you have a really strong and we've, we've talked about this at length. Um, there's ways to manage your site technology to do this, but have a strong uh, digital offering. Um, Digital has its own. I mean, you know, the the mobile fueling apps and, and all that, they have their own fraud problem. Don't get me wrong. And, and uh, that's a, a space we, I can talk about at length. But um, could you instead turn them into, um, you know, a convenient way to pay through their mobile device, whether that's QR code driven commerce or, you know, download an app. It could be mobile web, whatever it is, right? Something that uh, wouldn't require you to have card acceptance up at your dispenser, but you could have another way for the consumer to actually pay for fuel outside without having to go into the store. Um, that to me is kind of all the urban and suburban markets. They're going to have to deal with that in some way. When you get into ex-urban and rural, I, I, I think there's a limit to how, fraud, how far fraud moves. Um, I don't know what that exact number is. It depends on market. Um, sometimes it's 10, 20, 30 miles. But if you are you know, in a market that really hasn't seen a fraud issue, and, and we're seeing this in some of our conversations with retailers, is they've seen like two chargebacks since 1985. So what are oh, we wow. talking? You know what I mean, right? There's, there's people that just don't see chargebacks, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's, it's, they know all their customers because... They're from a smaller community and, and their their uh, fraud issue just doesn't exist. Now, will fraud move that far? I think we've yet to be seen, right? There's still too much, um, too many opportunities for fraudsters in the markets where they're, you know, most likely to operate. Um, for them, I, I think dealing with or sticking with card acceptance for, the, for now outside and even to a point getting into, hey, maybe I accept outsource or my, I turn off 
outdoor payment at the dispensers that I can't see, but I keep the ones that I can see. I allow those to have outdoor pay at the pump. Um, they have some options there that I, I don't think are afforded to the urban and, and suburban markets. That's kind of an interesting concept. Turn it off at the pumps you can't see, but be staring at someone through a window. And um... <laughs> Because you're, you're, yeah, you're spot on. What, what, I mean, you think about the, the two primary use cases of fraud, in my opinion, are exactly like the bladder trucks, right? That are mm-hmm. going to steal a ton of fuel. They're going to go to a construction site and sell at a discount, right? That's yeah. just what, that, that's one big fraud channel. And the other is that you sit on the forecourt in a, you know, an un, unseen corner and you're offering people fill ups for cash, right? So, you know, I'll give you a fill up for 40, especially now as fuel prices have gone up, uh, you know, sitting there offering a fill up for 40 bucks when, you know, it's going to be 60 bucks for that person to pay at the pump. Yeah, you get a lot of customers that way. But both of them become really obvious if you can see them, right? <laughs> yeah. To your, the, you know, the point of the example you provided, Frank, if I can see that person, there's, they're not going to be sitting there for two hours just dishing out, you know, free fill ups. I'm going to notice them mm-hmm. and, and go out or call the police, whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be interesting, especially in some of those smaller towns. I mean, gosh, I've, I've driven through some small towns in rural Iowa, especially where you just know that people are looking at you because they know every vehicle in town and yours is not one of them. It's a very weird feeling that's hard to describe to people, but you get someone who works at a small town convenience store like that. I mean, it goes without saying they literally know everybody. Right. Right. They have like yeah. IOU accounts and they have things that we don't even fathom in, uh, you know, in, in other markets, right? In, you know, an IOU in an urban market, <laughs> you'd be closed in a week. But in, you know, in, in, in other markets, it does exist, right? Those house accounts, stuff like that, because they know everybody. That's interesting. You know, you had you had mentioned something else um, when we were talking, uh, you know, kind of before we started recording here, that a lot of retailers are in a position now where, you know, look, they, the whole EMV compliance issue sucked so much resources out of their organizations just, just to, you know, just for compliance. Um, and they're at a point now where it's like, okay, looking at all the other security threats that come after that, there's just a sort of fatigue there. And there's this desire to maybe refocus investment in areas that are going to grow the business rather than just provide compliance. Um, that was interesting. Do you, do you mind commenting on that a bit? Kind of what are, what are you seeing right now? Yeah, I, I would almost say it's like uh, fatigue, right? A, what we saw for the last, I mean, and I think, you know, it was stated in the beginning, right? This has been coming for so long, right? And this has been what everyone's been preparing for, you know, uh, setting aside capital, securing, uh, securing capital in order to make this investment. So, you know, we're crossing this finish line. But for the last three years, many retailers haven't been, or two years, whatever that period is, we haven't focused as much resources on um, providing, investing in the other areas of the business that are really critical to delivering consumer needs, right? I, we've seen uh, you know, p- pockets of that type of investment throughout. I mean, obviously, there's a, a lot of investment going on in kind of the, the checkout innovation and the digital side of things. Um, but but I would argue that it's been done by a select number of organizations that have the means to do that, right? So you know, for the vast majority of organizations that are running on thinner margins, they're running on with a, a smaller number of sites. It becomes difficult, excuse me, becomes difficult to for them to allocate resources to digital uh, commerce experiences and. Two, how do we adjust and think about EV charging in the future? How do we think about alternative fuels? Um, the world, I, everyone, it's been stated as nauseam, the world's changed a tremendous amount in the last 18 months. And I, I think that lack of in, 
of investment that was being made even pre, you know pre-pandemic is now coming home to roost a bit, right? So we're having uh, a large number of stores in industry that are challenged because they just exhausted a lot of their capital on outdoor AMV. They're now challenged to say, all right, what do I do with you know digital online ordering, order ahead, food service in general? Because that's now an expectation mm-hmm. of of my uh, my local store, right? I've become a food service up, which you know it, in the past was op- maybe not the the focus of my location. Um, I'm getting challenged with why don't I have EV charging locations? And, and and there's all these questions that are that are being I think raised to the operators, and they're having to assess very rapidly where to steer their next investment. And and I started this on P2PE, you know, point-to-point encryption and tokenization. That's just another one in the hopper, right? And, and there's limited resources out there from a people and and dollars perspective. And I think this is probably the biggest challenge I see for operators today is just where, where do you put the dollars next? Because we exhausted such so much into the big nugget of, of outdoor EMV. And so you mentioned EV charging, and I'd love to ask you a question there because, you know, the Biden administration is talking about investing $174 billion into the electric vehicle market, building out a network of 500,000 EV chargers on the roads by 2030. So I, I'm curious about how you see this and, and how you kind of advise retailers when it comes to looking at the opportunity for EV charging. Is it an opportunity? Uh, is it something that they should be moving toward or maybe wait and see? I'll give the most consultant answer I can give you. It totally <laughs> depends. Um, so the reason it totally depends, right? If you if you look at a lot of the reports that are, that are out there, um, uh, Frank, I actually think you've, you've commented on this uh, publicly. So uh, I'll, I know... I, I see somewhat eye to eye with what where, uh, where you're at in the market. Um, mm-hmm. It depends because of your consumer base, right? If you're in a largely kind of going back to urban, uh, ur- they're all different, right? If I look at urban, suburban, exurban, rural, the needs change, right? Um, suburban, mm-hmm. to be honest, I would struggle to you know, advise a client to say there's X amount of, of substantial return on your investment to EV charging. That's a very big blanket statement. But the reason I state that is because especially in suburban markets, they're going to be charging in the, in the home. And they're oftentimes not far far enough away in any of their commutes that they're going to need a an external charging location outside of their home that it makes sense for them to go charge up at a convenience location for any reason. If they're going to do it outside of the home, they are 99% going to do it at grocery um, or at another location where they're already spending a substantial amount of time within their um, vicinity, right? So suburban, I haven't seen or heard much of advice, you know, good guidance on why that makes a lot of sense. Uh-huh. Um, branding aside, like, people can do it for branding, but I, I think the actual underlying financials just, I, I can't see my way through. Um, urban is an interesting problem um, because, the challenge that urban settings have is because of the large amount of vehicles that are maybe parked under a large condominium structure, the idea that there's going to be 200 EV chargers within a single condominium structure is asinine, right? They, they, uh-huh. That's a small uh, uh, energy supply, right? I mean, that, that's a, <laughs> that, that, that's too much uh, uh, infrastructure that I think those condominiums, apartment complexes, et cetera, will have to invest. So urban settings have this interesting problem where uh, users infrequently, because they're not driving very far, but infrequently will need to charge up outside of their 
um, their housing uh, location. And I do think that's where convenience stores do have an opportunity. Um, again, I think they're, they're challenged though, right? They have to compete with grocery stores. They have to compete with, um, you know, the outside of the home shopping or movies in the future when we're going to movies, um, all that. Right? They're competing <laughs> with these, these other uh, items. When you flip it though, and you get into uh, the rural and the over the road settings, that to me is like, it, that's where the money maker is, right? Um, especially as you think about those kind of over the road locations or, or, you know, the main store in town conversation, right? All of that, there's a substantial opportunity there. Um, just for obvious reasons, that's where the Phillips are, you know, Phillips, the charge ups are going to be. Um, there's an opportunity to provide food service offerings, make it a little bit more of a destination. Um, that's to, that to me is where like the, the sweet spot of EV charging in, uh, you know, the convenience and fuel market lies. Urban would be second and then suburban, I would say it, it'd be tough. Uh, it'll be tough for, uh, convenience operators in those markets to justify that investment. Yeah. It's really interesting. You bring that up. I have a friend of mine. Um, I just reconnected with, uh, again, I don't know, a couple months ago. So he just bought a Tesla model three, um, just bought a used one. He just has an old house in the Des Moines area that has, d- 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 doesn't have a garage. It has a carport, um, paid, I think 1500 to get a electrician to come out, put a charger in, um, he do, he has a 80 mile commute every day and says he has never used a public charger. He's driving from Des Moines to Ames, Iowa and back every single day, wow. sometimes further when he's running errands. And he says he's never once used a public charger and he's proud of it. Um, he, I mean, he's kind of a big Elon Musk fanboy, and you know, so he's, he's, he loves this. Um, and, but it kind of goes to show, um, you know, I mean, these cars right now, um, are getting ranges over 200 miles. I don't drive more than 200 miles in a day. I don't know anyone that drives more than 200 miles in a day. And in fact, it was really interesting. Um, Tesla's co-founder had a blog from 2006 on their website that was talking about how if the range on EVs hits 500 miles, he thinks there's going to be no need for public charging stations because he said, think about it. How much even on road trips do you honestly drive more than 500 miles in at, 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 at any one time. And, you know, he's like, if that's a case, you're going to need chargers wherever you park the car and that's it. Uh, the hotels, the home, the workplace, um, you know, wherever your endpoint is, because he's like, um, well, I plugged it into Google maps. I'm like, that would mean 500 miles is me going from Des Moines to Indianapolis. Now I've done a lot of long road trips, uh, Des Moines to Indianapolis. That's a bit of a drive. I'm probably going to want to just stop a little bit after that. Um, but that kind of raises an interesting issue. It's just for a lot of these drivers, um, this idea that they're going to be driving around and need to, Hey, I need, I need a charge. Uh, that's not really the use case of these vehicles. You start every day with a full charge and you know, it's it just is what it is. Yeah, I think I think the you're spot on. I, I think the the final use case that that makes sense from an EV charging perspective is as we get into more of the um, rideshare fleets, car share fleets, um, and autonomous vehicles in the future. I know we're, that's down the line, but even for now, car shares and, and uh, ride shares, um, especially as we think about them being out the road for hours and hours and hours. Uh, and in settings that burn a lot of, of battery life, right? Because they're in urban settings. They're obviously, you know, stoplights and all that stuff that, that, that they're not just on highway driving. Uh, but as you look at that, I, that to me is the potential final use case that makes a little bit of sense. Um, convenience operators have a, if there's one thing that they have, it's land, right? I mean, I, I, I mm-hmm. they're just going to need locations 
for a lot of those uh, EVs in the future to park and charge, right? And and that is something that convenience operators can monetize with the right partnerships with those, uh, the car share and ride share operators in the future. Uh, but you're right. I think the average consumer, I can't imagine a scenario where they're needing much in terms of over the road charging. Um, we're not yet at the 500, you know, miles uh, of range yet, even though there's some that, that do boast the 350, 400. If you look at the actual range that those actually, you know, the, the range that they deliver, it's usually less, right? They're not delivering all the way up to 350 or 400. It'll hit it, you know, 300 or something like that. So we're, we're not there yet. Um, but as technology continues to advance, I think that's a spot on vision is that the lion's share of the long distance charging isn't going to be as necessary. Well, you know, going back to Aaron's comment about the Biden administration, it's it's interesting, too, because I think in the current political climate, I mean, do you do you do you see any fear that the federal government will just go out and put in their own charging networks or that the utility companies will or that um, maybe retailers are going to have to compete with, uh, well, competitors that they haven't really had to deal with? And I say this within the context of long distance driving, because obviously right now you don't have the federal or state governments building uh, gas stations and convenience stores on the interstates at public rest areas. But what if those public rest areas suddenly got charging banks and, uh, I don't know, some smart fridges with some snacks or something? That'd be that'd be an interesting situation. Yeah, it would. Um, I haven't heard any. I mean, just I haven't heard any. Uh, fear, true fear of that yet, but yeah, I would, I would agree. If if something came out like that, that would really challenge this this over the road setting. Um, I I think the probably the area where the federal government may may get involved. If if I had to think about one of the major challenges that retailers face is EV charging models. What do I put into? I mean, do I put a supercharger? Do I partner with Tesla and put in superchargers? Right. That's actually the standardization of the charging technology to me is something that might come down from a, a, a government from a regulatory standpoint. And, and that would actually, to me, probably be pretty helpful to the convenience operator world, because if I look at it today, they have to make decisions based on. And, and we don't often know what type of vehicles are, are you know going through convenience and fuel locations, uh, but they have to make those decisions of, all right, am I going to, you know, put in a, a charging model that supports X vehicles or a different charging model that supports Y vehicles. And does that make, make sense for my business? So I, I would imagine that would be something that would come down. Um, it'd be interesting to see if the government decides to take the next step into yeah. providing that as like a public utility. You know, so one thing I'm kind of curious about kind of going back to your, um, one of your earlier comments. So if, you know, for any retailers that are listening, if they're, if, if they're sitting here and thinking, okay, where do I invest my resources? That's going to really get me a solid ROI. Um, you know, what, what should I be looking at, um, with regard to EV charging, how would you advise some of them with that? Because, you know, for example, if you have stores in a suburban area, does it really make sense to even dip your toes in this? Or would it be better just to say, hey, um, I'm going to work on building a food service program with a strong brand identity because that's ultimate. Everyone eats and drinks three times a day. Um, you know, people in my neighborhood are charging at home. I, I would vast majority of the sites out there. I, I mean, I would I would put it around uh, improving the site experience, food service offerings, Um and, and focusing on that part of the business because I, while EV charging is a force that's coming down, the other aspect of that that's really important to note is 
let it, it, in one in some ways, if you make a bet on EV charging, you're also making a bet that you are going to most likely be losing out on a substantial amount of your margin and profitability, which is fuel margin, right? And and I, I think that that's the you know the the real force that's coming here is regardless of whether you recoup some of the lost margin from fuel sales over the next five to ten years, we're never going to recoup all of it, right? It was just not. The, the volume won't be there because of the home charging aspect, which is a substantial portion of the amount of charging activity that will be done. So investing in EV charging should be a part of your store and brand strategy. If it's front and center, I, I would argue you're probably missing the boat on what you need to be focusing on. You need th- those operators that you know are, are looking at the traditional fuel cokes and smokes as their margin getters, right? If, if they, you know, want to continue and, and, and replace some of that margin from a fuel perspective, they have to do it in the store. You're not going to do it through EV charging. You have to do it through food service offerings, fresh food, um, become the, the, you know, convenient, true convenience item for grocery to go. Um, it depends on your market and whether that makes sense with competitors, but that, that to me is a far better area to focus and all the digital components that go around it, um, than focusing on EV charging too heavily or at least not as a sole brand strategy. It could be a part of it. And you mentioned all the digital components that go around it. Can you touch on that briefly and and what what makes sense to be looking at right now when it comes to those digital components? Yeah, I mean, I obviously the the, the trend of the last year, year and a half has been mm-hmm. um, everyone, you know, for the first time convenience getting into order ahead and curbside and delivery. I mean, these weren't concepts that really convenience operators were accustomed to, right? This was reserved to QSR. This was, you know, reserved to the large big box retailers of the world. Um, so those are definitely the components I'm talking about. I I would say what, we're, what we saw from convenience and fuel and what we're going to see in the next couple of years, everyone, because they had to react quickly, went with the 3PLs, right? We, we Everyone went with the third-party logistics and um, outsourced all of their uh, ordering and fulfillment and the customer experience and payment and every, all other control for digital to DoorDash, Instacart, Postmates, Uber Eats, all that stuff, right? Um, we're going to see, and we should, I, I hope for our, you know, the industry that people start to claw components of that back. Um, I, and I, I mean, I, I don't want to get too much into thinking about it competitively, but, but DoorDash is a competitor, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. they, they quite frankly are a, a, uh, strictly a competitor convenience operators. And the one thing that you we handed over to these industries was control of the customer, right? We hand it over to the 3PLs. We handed control of the customer over to them. So I, I think we're going to see this clawed back over the next couple of years. Um, the, the three, I, I think most will continue to use the third-party logistics for things that they don't want in-house, namely delivery. I, I think managing delivery, drivers and and that experience is probably likely something that people will keep with the third-party logistics. But I think the online ordering, um, the uh, actual fulfillment, payment, loyalty, everything that happens. The, it, the data components. It's, it's got to come <laughs> back, right? It, it ha- Exactly. You have, to have, you have to have control of your, your own data, it sounds like you're saying. Yeah, and, and it's it really goes in, into customer engagement too. I mean, if, if the data sits with DoorDash, I don't have the chance to engage that customer unless I do it through DoorDash, right? And, and that's 
I, I've lost the substantial opportunity it's generated from a, con- a consumer transacting in digital. So that to me is the trend that has to come in the next couple of years is regaining control over the digital experience and the data that goes with it. Yeah, it's actually interesting. So like on, all right, on, you can't see this here, but on one of my monitors, it's, it's vertical. So I've got a lot of room here to look and I'm looking at the convenience tab, uh, for Dallas on DoorDash, um, all the way down to where I, I can't even see on the screen right now, buried down there is racetrack and fuel city at the top of it is dash mart. That's kind of the problem. Dash Mart has, it's saying here, 4.7 stars with 17,300 ratings. The next one below that is 7-Eleven with 234 ratings. So I don't know if that's indicative of the volume they're getting through Dash Mart on that platform, but I would suspect it is because I know the Dash Mart that just opened in Des Moines only has 35 ratings the last time I looked. So apparently it's getting some use in Dallas. And I think that's kind of the problem right there. Like you're relying on this platform for your infrastructure, but this platform is going to just put its own offer out and compete with you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the Bezos quote, your margin is my opportunity, right? I mean, as what yeah. Dash Mart's sitting there, they're like, wait a minute, I can make the next, I, I already control everything. And then I just need to put some inventory in a warehouse over here and I can capture your margin. Great. I'm in, right? I mean, that that's what they're doing. They just slowly realized what they're what they had, I think, stumbled into. And, and it's that control of the customer. Um, and it, it is, it's, it's, um, uh, uh, a truly competitive force to the market. Um, and I, I mean, I, I look at like GoPuff and the acquisition of Bev- mm-hmm. BevMo is the exact same thing, right? Actually, they, they have, they're a little bit better positioned because of, um, you know, the market that they, they really bought into, but it's the same concept and they're going to challenge, they're going to put pressure on convenience operators in the same way. Well, you know, it's interesting to bring up Amazon. Um, I mean, just look at the Amazon basic store. Like that's kind of the end game for this sort of thing. Um, you know, they have a top performer in virtually every product category in the website on the Amazon basics website, like looking right here. Um, you know, all right, I have a, I have a small dog, so you can go into target and what spend like $12 and get like 200 dog poop bags. I'm looking at Amazon basics. You've got 900 for 20 bucks. You know, I don't think Amazon is passionate about making dog poop bags. That's not their business, but yet, you know, more likely is they just studied a top, uh, top performer in a product category deployed a cheaper and uh, much more value added version. And there you go. And it's, uh, you know, I feel like these aggregators have every reason, every incentive to do the exact same thing. It's interesting with um, Uber Eats partnering with GoPuff um, rather than kind of going the Dash Mart route. But still, I mean, these are competitors. These aren't, uh, I don't know. It's interesting. But at the same time, I know uh, Wawa CEO said on a Shop Talk Live episode that, um, of the top 25 items that they're seeing delivered from Wawa on all those aggregators, none of them are coming from national brands. It's all Wawa's products. It's their food. And that's interesting. That really says something about the value of a very good food service program with a strong brand identity as a hedge against this kind of activity. Yeah, they're, they're uniquely mean, positioned, right? I mean, there are very few, yeah. w- w- very few Wawa's in, in the U S yeah. but, but you're spot on, right? I mean, I, 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 I just laugh laugh at all the the, the battles of Wawa versus Sheets food, right? But but that says so much about mm-hmm. the two brands that those those organizations have created around specifically around their food offerings. I mean, they're they're really a food company that serves fuel, not the inverse, right? And and that that's just far different than um, where most convenience operators are positioned in in the states today. Well, I think that's a good ending point, but uh, 
yeah, this is a really fun conversation. Thanks for thanks for coming on and joining us. I feel like we could uh, whenever we all get back to an industry event, we we all need to grab a beer and have, continue this conversation. <laughs> I can't tell you how great that sounds. <laughs> I think we're all at a point where uh, a beer at an industry event sounds pretty fantastic. Patrick, thanks again for coming on and joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Patrick. Yeah, thank you both. This was a great time.